everyone. Welcome back to Redefine the Circle. I'm Ashley Sunshine, co-owner and head of pitching development here at OGX. Today's episode, we have Laura McDonald. Laura, welcome back to Redefine the Circle. Always a pleasure to be here. Okay, uh, let's get right into it. Today's discussion is about biomechanics. So it's my favorite topic. For those of you who don't know why Laura is sitting next to me if we're talking about biomechanics, um, go back and do your homework, maybe. Maybe. You're the you're the person. You're the person that obviously uh, our lead biomechanist, the person who has really helped us from the start ever since we really started diving into the world of pitching biomechanics. Uh, maybe give a quick little like 30 second why you're our person for biomechanics. Just not like tell us your whole history, but um, what, you know, from a, your PhD program, what sort of led you down this path and why when we met you um, at this point, what feels like a hundred years ago in a good way, mm -hmm. um, but why we were obviously, you know, like a match made to yeah. be. So I think like, you know, most people that get into work like this, you've, you've had your own experience in the game that was, you know, maybe positive or negative. Mine was a little negative from an injury standpoint. And when I went to graduate school, I have an undergrad, undergraduate degree in athletic training. I was like, ah, I just want to tape ankles the rest of my life. And I had three choices for my graduate degree in exercise science concentration. It was motor control, ex-phys, and biomechanics. And I'm like, well, one of those sounds interesting to me. And then I really just, I fell in love with biomechanics. It was a way to actually, you know, uh, understand human movement quantitatively. And I was always a math and science girl. And then I got suckered into a PhD uh, in biomechanics and movement science, which was an interdisciplinary program. So I took a lot of classes in, you know, in exercise physiology and other areas, but also in the motor control concept, which ended up being a, a huge asset for our conversations about plyos and movement variability and the way we approach our current training system. So having a mix of the quantitative side, but also really understanding you know, human movement is complicated for sure, and and the control of it is complicated. I think is a it's a unique mix. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, so just the reason why I really wanted to bring up biomechanics. I think early on when we first came on the scene, if you will, we were kind of known as like the biomechanics people, and I don't know why but that never really settled well with me because I thought, well that's a subset of what we do. It's at the heart of probably what we do, but we consider ourselves to be the people that are really about player development and player development is very broad. It has to do with uh, per chasing performance and how to do that. It has to do with understanding patterns and collecting data and monitoring health and wellness. As you know, we could go on and on the different categories or subcategories of the, of the things that we work with on a daily basis, whether it's with coaches or athletes. But the heart of it is understanding the motion, and that became very clear to us. You can't teach it. You can't influence it. You can't manage it, at least not well, if you don't understand it. That's right. So early on in this process for us of collecting data, we really just started with, let's better understand the motion. Tell us why, or tell our listeners really why, it was not as simple, let's rewind to 2018, it was not as simple as, hey, I, Ashley Sunshine, want to understand the pitching motion a little bit better, let me just open up the following research articles, and uh, that should do it for me. Why was it not that simple? Why is it still not that simple for coaches out there now? Yeah, I think, you know, I think the, the sort of lack of softball pitching research, um, you know, particularly, I say it's picked up a little bit, you know, in the last 10 years or so, but before that it was just this presumption that the motion was more natural, so why study it, right? There really wasn't an understanding of, 
I think how difficult it really is. Um, we, I don't, we did not understand the double turn concept or, you know, this, this understanding of what the trunk and arm have to do together. You know, I was just as guilty of that with my own graduate work of not seeing it through the lens of the entire body. And it, it just, it, it just didn't have the energy of, uh, you know, funding and motivation that baseball did because baseball was experiencing, you know, a number of injuries. You had, you know, Tommy John and all of these types of high profile, you know, big time loss injuries that, you know, were driving a lot of the funding from the MLB and softball just didn't have that. Yeah. And, you know, the complexities of studying a motion where the arm does go in a full circle, I mean, it presents some things really challenging from an analysis standpoint that, you know, it, it takes understanding the motion and or at least backtracking and realizing you don't understand the motion and coming at it with a clean slate to really start to ask the right questions of what does the motion actually mean? What does it do? How are, what are we asking our pitchers to do? And then going to the analysis part. Yeah. Um, and so I get that question a lot of like, you know, why isn't there research? It's like, cause that research is pretty hard. I've been doing it for most of my life and it's, it's a challenge and you know, what's out there is great. But we are still suffering many, many years later from a lack of good, solid depth of research. On yeah, motion. I think what became pretty clear to me as someone who, uh, again, let's kind of go back 2018, if you will, was really trying to dive into this world of understanding the motion a little bit better. I started to realize there were there were a few categories. One was the category of, OK, there's some findings, there's some data and research but I'm a coach and this doesn't speak to me. There's no practical application. I can't read this and then know what to do when I go out into the cage, the bullpen, et cetera, into the training environment with my athlete. And as we came out of the scene, not of like, we want to lead biomechanics, but in like, we want to be able to understand what player development looks like for pitching. So this means coaching. This means influencing what the athlete can do. So there has to be this level of practical application. So that was one thing that I think right away, we always came at it from a standpoint of, we want to understand the motion in order to influence it. That is different than just being able to write an article and then hands off what you do with it, you do with it, right? There's always limitations too. I mean, you know, research in a lab, research, quote unquote, in the field or in the bullpen is always inherently different. Not just the tools that are available to you, but there are... You know, you go in with a scientific approach, obviously, to, you know, generating research that would lead to a publication. Those, you have to always keep in mind biases, whether they are inherent or not inherent, your own, influenced by the data. But it, there's a, it's difficult to generalize any kind of research study. So, and, it, you know, this is giving a, a little bit beyond the topic, but we also don't value in the current, you know, sort of tenure academic concepts of what drives research of replication. And so everybody wants to be novel. Everybody wants to be new because that's what gets you, you know, attention and, and high profile. And honestly, what we need are, are replicating studies over and over again in different populations with better methods to make sure that the questions that we're answering with that information can be generalized. Yeah. You know, but most of our studies, you know, coming out of the 2000s, essentially, there were, you know, some high, higher level athletes, college and above, we only really have just started to get into even understanding the youth motion, you know, and like that development from, you know, starting as a young pitcher and beyond and whether we should even separate them by those categories necessarily. Yeah. So, so I think we came into this in this unique space of we're not trying to drive publications. We're not trying to become 
these high profile researchers. And coming from the academic world. Right. It's that a breath was, of fresh air. Right. And we're like, we just want to be able to influence an, a pitcher's actual journey. Ask good questions. And, and in order to do that, we have to understand the emotion a little bit more. I think it became very clear to me that we were treating the motion as if we were trying to replicate a series of positions that we were trying to, and this still exists, there is a pitching coach, you know, X is like, this is the style. This is what everyone needs to look like. These are the patterns or this pitcher looks like this. So everyone should do that. And what we really have learned along the way is that is, it's simply, I mean, outlandish, right? I mean, the body is so complex right. that it is not about replicating something. I always say, is there an optimal? Yeah, of course, there's always an optimal. Is optimal realistic for the overwhelming majority? Absolutely not. The level of complexity and the types of variables that are uh, involved as far as the trunk, the arm, the relationship, we're not seeking optimal, right? And so it wasn't about going into the biomechanics space for us was not about validating that we know how to teach the motion versus the person next to us, which is still the world that I think pitching instructors some live in. And honestly, at this point, I think there was a time where I was felt in that battle. And now like, to me, it's noise, right? And it's like, we're, that's not how the motion works. That's not, you know, that's not relevant, essentially. What we're really looking at is a better understanding of how the trunk, what's, in, what's being asked of the trunk. How does that influence the arm? And then ultimately, what does that do to ball flight? So if we're going to influence the motion, what that does not mean is simply saying, this is what your patterns need to look like. Let's now look at a video. Let's maybe even look at data and let's make sure it's matching. Right. In my mind, there is no such thing as pattern improvement if you do not know how the ball was influenced. Absolutely. So we're talking about velocity over time. We're talking about break concepts, variability concepts, change of speed. We're talking about health and wellness. What biomechanics and the understanding of the motion is really about is not validating that one instructor is right in his or her teachings. It's not about the reason why, you know, pitcher A was the best pitcher of all time is because she does this and now everyone needs to do that. It's about understanding that it is at the heart of health and wellness. So understanding specifically how one pitcher moves and, and its relationship to her health and wellness, in addition to its relationship to what she does and does not produce on the ball. 100%. I think when you mentioned, you mentioned style, style to me always means some concept of I'm trying to achieve a particular position, right? Whether it's from a, a still of a video or some particular, I want them to look like this. That's a style, in my opinion. And it, it's one, the human body is way too complicated to apply the same thing to everybody. But when you approach this conversation of understanding the biomechanics of the motion first, and within the, you know, sort of within picture constraints for herself, you start to see patterns arise. And so the conversation then shifts from what are these positions I need her to achieve versus where does the body get put into optimal and efficient transfers of energy? And those are active, right? They're not, they're not still positions. It's not, I need to be, you know, this position with my arm at stride foot contacts. How did I get there? 
right? And seeing it through the entire motion. And as you said, it's, you know, inefficient pitching patterns will show up eventually, right? Some pitchers are incredibly lucky and, and resilient to a certain degree where maybe they never have injury. Maybe they never, their performance is fantastic. They are very effective. Great. It doesn't mean their patterns are wrong. It doesn't mean their patterns are not to be replicated, but it's going to catch up at some point, which is where the workload conversation comes in. And so you've got to know her story. And that's where I feel that biomechanics is most powerful. And I think in general, I think in general, the biomechanics world in this kind of research, we've always done, every sport's done this. It's said like, okay, that person is the goat, right? And so we're going to replicate everything about that person. And it, it's, it's only, I think, now we're starting to see the level of individual differences because we're studying them more effectively. And we're saying, okay, it's not just a mold. Yeah. It's these really clear transfers of energy that are important. How you achieve that, how you get there is going to look different for everybody. Yeah. We, this concept or this, this uh, phrase we often use here, of like know an athlete's story. This is what we're referring to, right? So we started, um, when, we're, when we, when we started looking at, okay, let's better understand the motion. Majority of this time we have used wearable sensors. So I'll ask you to explain what wearable sensors are, pros and cons. Yeah. Um, and, and we've just collected data. Now, by no means have we used wearable sensors and said, okay, this value is what everyone is chasing. One, because even if we were in a motion capture lab from the start, you don't chase a value just for the reasons we're talking about. This isn't about achieving specific. It's much more, uh, you have to take a much more sort of like bird's eye view yeah. to what is being accomplished in the motion as a whole and not just individual data points, right? Okay, so not only would we not, have we never done that, right? But also, we recognize that the values that come out of these wearable sensors are specific to that technology, which is okay, because we are not, again, chasing very specific things. We're saying when using this technology, right. we are seeing the relationship of this from a trunk standpoint, mm -hmm. that it does this to the arm, and therefore, this is why it's yielding XYZ on the ball. Yep. The consistency in the story and understanding the relationship to each of these the fact that the type of technology you use will change the, the specific values that you see, right, is irrelevant because of the way in which we use it. So uh, can you explain that a little bit more clearly maybe to anyone that might be listening of like, well, you can't study biomechanics. You don't know what you're talking about if you're not in a motion capture lab. Mm. Yeah, I, there's always a trade-off, always a trade-off. There's trade-offs with, with gold standard motion capture, right? So Anytime we say something is gold standard, it just means it gives us the clearest opportunity, you know, whether it's something like x-ray or MRI, there's always trade-offs, there's always risks and trade-offs to that stuff. So you're talking about a, a piece of technology that has the most reward for its application with the least amount of risk, essentially. And motion capture is very high reward. It, you know, is able to uh, again, has limitations, but it's able to really identify, you know, body position and space very well. It's it's our top level right now. Um, and anything that is basically, quote unquote, below that also has trade-offs. And I think, you know, as you said, it's not about taking this sensor data and saying, okay, it's it's comparable to this. It's telling that story within the data set. And as you were talking, I kept thinking, you know, the 
the telling of the athlete's story is is sort of internal to those sensors, yes, but really where that came from was pattern recognition, right? It was those value ranges and, and you seeing, you know, with the data and your eye, because we need that. Mm -hmm. There are limitations, as we said, which I'll talk about, uh, of seeing, okay, when a, when a pitcher is in within this range or outside this range, here's the consequence. She may make up for that somewhere else in the motion, but there's this is the consequence of that. That's just pattern recognition, mm -hmm. right? And it just happens to be that these sensors are the way we're able to see that because that's the technology we've chosen. Yeah. So, you know, the, anytime you have any sort of wearable sensor, you're dealing with an accelerometer, the same type of technology that makes your phone go from portrait to landscape. And accelerometers have their value. They've been around a really long time. But just like any other technology, their trade-offs are... One, the positives is that you can put them right on in the bullpen, right? Mm -hmm. So their their field use is fantastic. Uh, you know, battery life, they're non-invasive, they're not overwhelming for the athlete to put on, but their drawbacks are oftentimes they can't capture fast enough, mm -hmm. right? So that was a limitation of the particular generation of sensors we were using. We couldn't use them for pitching because they didn't capture fast enough and mm -hmm. the ball delivery was just too quick. Right, so you just have to know what your limitations are. You know, what are, when, what are you looking for in the motion, or whatever you're studying, and then what is the limitation of that technology? Yeah, and anytime that you've got the trunk and the arm trying to make a connection with each other, the speed at which the arm is collected is very important. Mm -hmm. Right, and so as I said, ball delivery just it's really quick and. I think even the current generation of things that we're using, there's still limitations. Sure. We have way farther to go in understanding the trunk arm relationship now that we're partnering with biomechanics labs and being able to see, yeah. you know, the depth of that data. Yeah, and we'll get into that as far as now that we're in the motion capture lab and getting that data and being able to look at it, um, applying even uh, you know, greater uh, beyond what we're typically using here, obviously, not just the wearables, but now force plates and yep. such. We'll get into that. Yep. But I think this is where I really like the point I really want to drive home is that we have always used this idea of let's study biomechanics as a means to let's try to push player development as much as possible. When an athlete comes to us in pain, why is she in pain? And what we've started to realize, oh, there's this element of, there's all of these variables that are involved. There is the amount of power she has in the system, which is not usually linked uh, to her pattern efficiency. So there's a level of efficiency. So her trunk contributes very little. Um, she has a lot of an innate power profile that's elite, which makes her great, but it puts her at increased risk for pain. She has a particular pitch profile where she holds her forearm in a certain position. She gets into a certain position in her posture that puts her at increased risk. All of these puzzle pieces are so individualized, so unique to that athlete. But now that we've gone in, of we're trying to really understand player development, influence pitcher health and pitcher performance. The, the heart of both of those the ability to influence those really comes in understanding the emotion, understanding, okay, when we see these patterns, her options now, if she gets into this position, her options are this, this, or this, right? We now know these things. Okay, wow, that athlete had a compensation to get out of that. I've never seen that compensation before, right? There are these types of things. And so, yes, of course, that when we're using our wearable sensors, of course, you know, if we were going at it of the arm must achieve the, you know, get, 
a ball delivery has to achieve a following value or has to, we have to see the following range. If that's the way we were going into this, this is not a great approach, right? We would not be essentially designing the best research setting. But that isn't what we have gone into this. We've tried to understand what patterns look like, what different options are once patterns start to break down, how it influences the arm, and then ultimately what that does to the ball. We now know because of years of that work through wearable sensors that certain pitchers, there are certain pitch types or spin directions, rake profiles, however you want to think about it, that are not in the cards for them. There's gone are the days of saying every pitcher has to throw X, Y, and Z. We now know that the underhand motion only allows for access to certain positions on the ball. So even the slightest bit of compromise in trunk positioning and posture limits that even more, right? It's not an overhand slot. It is not, okay, all these options to get inside the ball, behind the ball, and the outside of the ball. We don't have that from the underhand slot. So as the trunk then starts to break down a little bit, it typically limits more and more. Do athletes have different strategies or compensations? Are there some pitchers who can spin the ball in multiple directions? Yes, of course. And now we can understand why, what do they do in order to achieve that? Sometimes an athlete's very, her very compensations that make her ball flight great. We've done multiple episodes on this. Also put her at increased risk of pain. And so depending on her level of, you know, how elite she is, we may not want to go after that. So understanding how her patterns connect to that are important. And then how she trains, what workload looks like for her has to be specific to that connection. So the wearable sensors have really been a great opportunity for us to understand the connection. It's about biomechanics and its role in player development as a whole. Yeah. That's really what I want to come across here to the audience as far as this isn't about like, we, this is how if you walked into OGX and watched every one of our pitchers, you would not say, oh, clearly they're all throwing like X. They all look like Y. It's because they train with OGX. That's ridiculous. That's not how we see human movement. And our research thus far has showed us that this is not how the pitching motion is designed to be taught. Yeah, and I think I think sometimes the the lack of research when when it does come out and is available, you know, there are coaches that attach very strongly to it, and rightly so. It's that level of you know research is important. It there's a standard to it. It's peer review. Those things you know should give us the the confidence that we can take the information from it and apply it, but. The reality is that, as you said, you know, kind of to start this whole conversation is it's not always coach applicable, mm -hmm. right? And even, you know, it, statistics is not my strong suit, but even understanding the, the the statistics and the way correlation, what that means, right? What it means to have means and standard deviations and to have relationships and correlations and p-values, like you can have, you can have a value that says it is statistically significant. We run across this all the time in clinical research. That that value means yes, between these two groups, you know, maybe high school and college, there was a difference, and that's all it means is that there was a difference. It doesn't talk about the size of that difference. It doesn't talk about, you know, that that value doesn't mean that that difference had some sort of performance effect. It's yeah. just it's different, and so it, it's it can be tricky to take that level of research, and you know, maybe not have not have the the nuances of the statistics side down and know, okay, I like this value, this value speaks to me, I, I'm looking for this, I want to understand this, 
But to translate that into an athlete, it's tricky. Yeah. That's really tricky. And and again, we don't ever try to go for you've got to hit this range. You've got to hit. We just keep measuring yeah. and watching the patterns unfold. Right. So I think first and foremost, being able to explain like what it has, what it really means to us to be in the biomechanics world and why when it's, it's oh, they're the biomechanics people, I have sort of thought like, well, no, we're not. We don't just go after patterns for the sake of patterns. We go after understanding patterns for the sake of influencing what matters. So with that said, anyone who is still in the world of pitching instruction, pitching lessons, where everything is just about mechanics and pitching patterns, without there being some objective way, some way to visualize are getting into those patterns. People say like my mechanics have gotten better. And I always say like, how do you know? Like, well, because when we opened the video, but what influence did that have on anything? Are you out of pain now? And they're like, well, I wasn't in pain. Okay. Is your VLO better? Well, I don't know. We don't really look at VLO. Is your break better? Well, we don't measure break. We might be measuring command, right? But so there, in my mind, there is no such thing as improving patterns. There's a such thing as changing patterns. You can say that you've changed your patterns by just looking at video, right? And saying, okay, you look different. Mm -hmm. Improving, which is a, whole different is a whole different way. That is making the assumption that it is better for you. And the only way to know if that pattern change was better is if you have some way of showing that it did something, had a positive effect on health, wellness, arm pain, back pain, et cetera, et cetera velo, break, et cetera, right? And so the same exact pattern change that I might go after on athlete A might be catastrophic for athlete B. And that's just the reality of it, right? And we now know that. So that is sort of, I think, in a nutshell, of like what it means to understand biomechanics. But now we've also gotten to this chapter for us where we, yes, we know that the wearable sensors can tell us a lot about the connectivity of an athlete's story. It allows us to tell an athlete and her coaches and parents, et cetera, what her story is and help her better understand that story but we're pushing what we're pushing beyond that now right now the types of patterns we are seeing we need to go one step deeper so can you tell us and i think we will have future episodes where we go into more detail about our relationship with uno and what that looks like from a standpoint of what it even looks like to help design the lab. Yeah. I think that in itself is probably another episode, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about generally what that relationship is, how it is really uh, kind of like the next step mm -hmm. for us in understanding a, you know, another level, a more com complex level of data specifically when it comes to biomechanics. Yeah. Um, so this relationship with, you know, the University of Nebraska and Omaha, they had already had, basically a, a uh, pitching lab set up for baseball and we're getting a lot of inquiries on softball and and reached out um you know to us essentially to me essentially as you know we're getting these inquiries we don't really know how to handle what's different unique about it and would you help us and so it, it became a really one it became a very strong relationship from the start i mean the the level of biomechanics research that, you know, just the university itself is known for, the Center for Human Movement Variability, it is known for all of that. Um, it made it an obvious partner, right, in terms of quality. It has been just, it's been so rewarding to one, you know, one, as you said, we've we've reached our max with where we are from a wearable sensor standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, the questions I get a lot are like, okay, well, what about 
markerless kinematics, right? So you mentioned video, you mentioned watching video. And I will say with a lot of confidence, we are not there yet mm -hmm. in softball pitching. We're not, it's too complicated. And I'll be very clear of markerless kinematics, any app that is selling you, that, that the values that come out of that app are accurate, you should take with a huge grain of salt. Markerless kinematics need to be fed motion capture data that's marker based. And in, in order, order to validate, in order to validate it, right? It's just like, again, we have this gold standard, which has been motion capture, which has limitations, skin movement, markers falling off, you're in a lab, there's all kinds of limitations, but it's our gold standard. So in order for any, any app or anything to tell you that values from even three dimensional video, but two dimensional video are right mm -hmm. has to be fed good marker-based data so yeah. tread cautiously with that technology right now um but this work of kind of knowing that okay we've reached our max with our sensors and having this hand in this collaboration of okay we really have been able to like support the conversation of how to design mm -hmm. that lab that you know within their you know capabilities to ask the right questions, to really capture a full, complete data set with force plates and motion capture. And we have been doing markerless, and I'll tell you, there's you know, there's limitations to that as, as well in terms of accuracy, as I said. So we've captured that data. Uh, and so we have felt, you know, in this collaboration that marker-based is the way to go because yeah. there isn't enough good quality data sets out there yeah. to feed that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so having that hand in that and knowing like, okay, we have a path toward moving beyond our sensors and the level of new questions that we get to ask. It's just yeah. it's so nerdy, but the questions that we get to ask now that we have this better set of tools at our disposal, I mean, it just, it opens yeah. the door on so many things. Yeah, for us, it's this concept of we've spent years understanding patterns and their connection to health and ball flight data, right? And so now we, we even created a report that's when you're in this range, when the data is in this range, it means this, it means this for your patterns, it means this, this is what it's likely to do to your arm, does it match your ball flight? Yes, right, that's our process. Now we've been able to take that same concept, apply it to data that is now uh, from a motion capture standpoint, so obviously it's a higher level data set, and, and be able to see, of course, the the actual ranges. So for example, what the wearable sensors might say is 3,000 might come out as 8,000, right? So the ranges might shift. And so now understanding what those ranges look like with a different data set because of a different level of technology, but still that the connectivity, even though the ranges may shift because the technology has shifted, the connectivity to the story is the same, right? right? Storytelling gets better. It just gets better. Right. It gets more clear. Yeah. It we can start to see some of these these nuances with the arm, especially the arm is really you know kind of plagued us with the sensors, as yeah. I said, because of their capture rate and the the storytelling gets better. It yeah. just gets better. And I say the other, you know, the other big limitation that that we've had to work around is we don't have any feet, right? The force mm -hmm. plates and and event detection. That's been so much of our conversation with this group yeah. has been. And when I say event detection, I mean, what are these really clear points in the motion that we want to make sure we understand, you know, where is the arm in space? Right. What is the max this? That's event detection. And we already know that there's going to be lots of uh, 
challenges to mm -hmm. any sort of singular algorithm because pitchers just do, they do things so differently. Yeah. Um, but understanding even what we're trying to go for yeah. in terms of these points in the motion that we care about um, and just seeing what does the data bring us on that. That's yeah. been really challenging, but having these, you know, having the feet, having the force plates, it's a big deal. But, you know, at the end of the day, the, the feet don't deliver the ball. And right. so it, understanding all of that, force plates and all, we still have to have the context of the ball. Yeah, the context of the ball. So not only are we chasing motion capture and force plates, but you know, having ball flight in the lab at the same time captured simultaneously. It's mm -hmm. it's basically a replication of our assessment process yeah. with really good biomechanics data. I mean, top right. quality. Exactly. So this partnership for us, I was let me back up. I was thinking when we talk about where we really recommended to put the force plates, we wouldn't have known that five years ago. No. But basically this work that we've been doing in the underground has allowed us to understand what we are seeing. That direction of launch is a huge issue that we need to account for when the weight shift, you know, some athletes put more weight on this foot versus this foot. You've got to account for both, right? So even our ability to have conversation with UNOs, they're the you know um, individuals who are helping to design the lab of where those force plates would go, we couldn't have done that a couple of years ago, right? So we've come in now with such better information because of this work we've been doing in the underground. But this collaboration and this partnership is our ability to ask questions and and start to get answers beyond what a lesser or a lower level of technology can provide. So it's us elevating research for the game, which is huge. It's our opportunity then to you know, when you're talking about markerless, when you're talking about wearables, to push those, you know, to really provide some validation uh, for any expansion in technology in our game has got to come from a solid gold standard right. database, which we're obviously looking to grow. Um, it's really exciting work, obviously. Yeah. This idea of if pitching is ever going to have a workload management culture, I mean, a real one, whether it's pitch counts, whether it's, you know, it's going to come from the type of work that we're doing. Now the ability to show how much stress is actually on the body because of the motion, right? And to disconnect it from, oh, because it doesn't look like baseball, then it gets a certain reputation. We are really giving the motion the time, attention, and research it deserves. Yeah. And uh, again, we're able to come into this now in, with such a different lens than we could have years ago because of the way we've really taken in the data from the wear, the wearable sensors. It so was, It was a starting point. And it absolutely. Served us, it served us very well. And they'll continue and to serve us because they're what's applicable to the field, yeah. right? And so I think I wanted to be able to use this as an opportunity to explain, like when we talk about biomechanics, that can seem very overwhelming. But at the end of the day, remember, biomechanics is a piece of player development. We do not believe in looking at patterns as if it's a silo on an island. It has to connect to what matters, which is this health and performance concept, right? And so we are continuing to pour ourselves to dive into knowing more and more about pitching patterns um, and continuing to really challenge different tech companies to be able to give more access to other coaches and athletes who cannot be in a, a gold standard motion capture lab, right? This is not, we're trying to make sure that the information is applicable because that's how it's always started for us. Right. The, the field applications and, and any technology that comes 
you know, to the, to the, I don't say coaches level, I mean, to their literally where they're coaching yeah. needs to be informed by yes. this higher level technology. And so field technology will always have its application. Every sport has that, right? Down to a stopwatch, to a laser timer, right? Every sport has a level of field technology that has to be readily available for the athlete in their environment. Yeah. yeah. And, but it's got to be informed with good stuff. And yeah. So that's the stuff I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so excited to to continue to partner with them and to build this and to, you know, start to build these data sets of one for researchers to ask questions, right? For yeah. for researchers to ask questions to to guide health and wellness, to guide performance, um, but to really give this motion what it deserves. Yeah, same here. Understanding. Okay, so we didn't know we when I'm like, let's talk about biomechanics in this episode. Like, this could be 12 episodes in one, but I think we should stop at that point. Yeah. I think the topic in and of itself is a lot and is can be overwhelming. Um, if you're an athlete, if you're a parent, uh, if you're even a coach listening to this, I think the biggest takeaway that I could that I can really ask you to to really have from this episode is to understand the role of biomechanics. If you feel as if I don't have time for patterns, I don't have time to influence them, or I spend all of my time just looking at video without ever measuring what's happening on the ball, maybe check yourself in understanding that we really can't segment one from the other. Yeah, right? I, I, I always say, you know, Every coach is a biomechanist in some way. It's just a matter of the tools that you're using, yeah. right? And so, you know, my kind of running joke is like finger painting on iPhone video, right? There is right. a value to that. I joke about it, but yeah. there's a value to that of that's what I have access to. And so I consult with coaches a lot that are like, this is all I have. Great, let's make the best use of it. But your, your ability to ultimately answer whether or not you are truly improving something comes in the effect, right? Mm -hmm. Understanding the cause, but the effect, yep. health and wellness, performance, and making your tools sharper, which yeah. means moving beyond, you know, video and maybe even investment in other technologies. But again, those technologies need to be fed with better, exactly. better information. We might sit on a consulting call and look at video. Sure. And yes, we're going to be asking for some type of what was the individual response? What objective data did we get based off of those recommendations? But we made those recommendations off of a reference point. Totally. What we are trying to do now is to keep growing and pushing the reference point, totally. right? That does not mean that that's the only way to know if patterns are good or bad, but we've got to grow this central reference point as a whole to keep the motion, uh, to keep all coaching um, kind of driving in the right direction and to keep athletes and their families from getting stuck in this. He said, she said, so I have to do everything. There should be a much more objective way to know if something is working. I mean, that's the reality. It happens all the time here. Like, I could think that was the best approach for athlete A, but all the data that's coming back is saying it's not working. So there should no longer be this, well, they said I have to hang in there for three months because my mechanics are changing and we, none of this is that this is a whole nother episode probably, but are the types of things that we're seeing, right? So getting out of the weeds of following style, getting out of the weeds of like that I have to make my motion look like something. We have a better reference point of, again, not only knowing a really, you know, more elite level about the motion, knowing about the complexity of the motion, and most importantly, it's connectivity to things beyond mechanics. Yeah. So um, let's keep this conversation going. I'd say we'll cut it off at today's episode. I'd like to go into a little bit more of some of the, the specifics we've 
so collected so far with UNO. Mm -hmm. We might even uh, kind of go into some of the visualizations we have thus far to show what that data is telling us. Um, it's exciting. It's yeah. definitely a huge part in order to grow the game, grow the position. Um, and so we probably can have about three or four episodes. So, 100%. Laura, I'm booking you for the next couple of weeks. So put it on your calendar. Okay. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning in today. I think this is a really exciting and um, an important topic when it comes to, as we said, giving the position, uh, the attention, the resources it absolutely deserves. We feel really honored and privileged to be in that ring. And we're going to keep advocating for it because we know that our athletes deserve it. So um, thanks for joining us today. As always, everyone, look out for uh, some future episodes talking about biomechanics, the specific work that we're doing in the UNO lab. Um, lots to come and a lot of really, really, uh, I think, just some great concepts, great data um, that we're just going to continue to share here on this podcast. Stay tuned. All right, everyone. Mm -hmm. Between now and next episode, remember, keep questing on to redefine the circle. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.